All right, let's get started. You're listening to the Seven Generation Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Bernard Navarro. We're going to be kicking off a series of podcasts on indigenous cultures, indigenous histories, and Native Americans in contemporary society. We dropped our Indigenous People's Day episode a week ago, and we're going to continue our discussion of the incredible indigenous communities all over the United States, really all over the entire Western Hemisphere. My focus will be the U.S., um, however, I'll include some information and some material on uh, Native Americans south of the border, Native Americans in Canada as well, and indigenous people throughout the world. Because there are tribal people everywhere. And I would say that indigenous communities are really going through a renaissance here. It's really a great time to be indigenous. It's not to say that we don't have uh, problems in our communities, that, that we're not still dealing with the trauma of settler colonialism, that we're not still dealing with the structure of settler colonialism. We absolutely are, and there are struggles taking place all over uh, the Western Hemisphere, really all over the world, where tribal communities are looking to protect their homelands, protect their sacred sites, keep their culture alive, keep their languages alive. And so we're going to talk a lot about all that stuff, and I'm going to give you guys some foundational information in regards to indigenous culture. So that way, if you don't know anything about Native Americans or all you know is the stereotypes, you're going to learn a lot from these podcasts. If you're a student of mine, uh, you'll probably be listening to these shows as part of an assignment, so you should be taking good notes. If you're just a, a longtime listener, I hope you enjoy the content. I did drop a podcast titled Everything You Should Know About Native Americans about a year ago. Some of that material will be repeated here, but I have a bunch of new content I plan on on dropping over the next month and a half. So again, we're going to kick off Native American Heritage Month early. Um, Let me just say that uh, the first American Indian Day was celebrated back in May 16th in New York. Uh, The event... Uh, culminated an effort by Red Fox James. He was a member of the Blackfeet Nation, and he rode across the country on horseback seeking approval from 24 state governments to have a day to honor American Indians. And eventually in 1990, again, we're talking about seven decades later, then-President George H.W. Bush signed a joint congressional resolution designating the month of November as National American Indian Heritage Month. And um, there's been proclamations by every president, I think, since 1994, again, recognizing uh, Native American Heritage Month during the month of November. It's sometimes called American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month. Um, And so this... um, podcast, at least in part, is a celebration of indigenous cultures. I like to uh, present indigenous issues, among other things as well. But for the next month and a half, my focus primarily will be on indigenous uh, tribal communities. There's just so much information out there uh, that uh, really gets it all wrong. So 
hopefully, if uh, you are listening to this podcast and you don't know much about tribal communities, you're going to be armed with a lot of new information. If you do know a lot, and much of this information I share will just be a refresher, but hopefully everybody who listens to this will get something from it. Okay, let me begin by mentioning the Yokut and Mono tribal communities. I have something that I wrote a few weeks back, and I'm going to read that right now. The city of Fresno and the surrounding areas are located on the ancestral homelands of the Yokut and Mono peoples. We should all take a moment and reflect on that fact. Since time immemorial, diverse indigenous communities have occupied the San Joaquin Valley and Sierra foothills, developing distinctive cultures that emphasized a love for the land and community. Their contributions to the history of the Central Valley are too vast to mention here. To acknowledge the city of Fresno is situated on native land is also to recognize the legacy and structure of settler colonialism. Despite decades of colonial violence, seizure of native lands and resources, force removal, and the federal government's attempt to eliminate indigenous cultures via the boarding school system, local tribal communities continue to exist, thus rendering the settler colonial project a failure. Acknowledging settler colonialism as a structure also requires a full interrogation of the systems of oppression which continue to violate indigenous human rights. Descendants of settlers should acknowledge the harm and trauma settler colonialism has inflicted on indigenous peoples. It is also important to concede non-native peoples here in the U.S. have benefited from the ongoing suffering of indigenous communities. Acknowledgement is not enough. We must respect indigenous rights and listen when they speak of their cultures, histories, and concerns. We must support efforts to dismantle the settler colonial structure embedded in our education systems. Unsettling settler colonialism not only sheds light on the historical and present-day injustices experienced by indigenous peoples across Indian country, but it also affords us an opportunity to unshackle ourselves from the colonial constraints and rebuild our community so all people can live with human dignity and abundance. All my relations. For those of you who don't know, the statement, all my relations, is a universal indigenous mindset that speaks to the interdependence of all living things. It's also a good reminder that we are all brothers and sisters. In other words, we are all relatives. It also reinforces the idea that everybody is worthy of love, respect, and human dignity. So once again, all my relations. So let me hit you with some quick facts here. So there are 7.1 million American Indians and Alaska Natives living in the United States as of 2020. This is U.S. Census data. It's projected that the American Indian and Alaska Native population will be around 10.1 million by 2060. That would constitute about 2.5% of the total population. So the indigenous population here in the United States is pretty small. There's 324 federally recognized American Indian reservations as of 2020. I'm going to explain what a re reservation is here in a minute. There are 574 federally recognized tribes here in the United States. That is, these are tribes that are acknowledged by the federal government. Acknowledgement is really important to tribal communities. It means that they have access to uh, federal resources that have been set aside 
as part of guarantees that were placed in these treaty agreements between American Indian communities and the federal government. There were 371 treaties that were signed and ratified by Congress. There's probably more than 400 treaties that were never ratified by Congress. There are several Native American communities, I believe around 300, that don't have federal acknowledgement that are working on getting recognized. Again, this is a, a, a big um, fight uh, throughout Indian country for those communities that are not recognized by the federal government to get acknowledgement. So the number of federally recognized tribes, it's 574. That's as of 2020. And as time goes on, hopefully more tribes uh, will get uh, that acknowledgement. So those are just some quick numbers there. Um, Let's get back to reservations and talk a little bit about what these are. I also want to talk about rancherias as well. So a reservation is a designated Indian territory. At one time, they were more like concentration camps. So when Indians are forced off their homelands by European settlers, they're basically pushed into what I would call a concentration camp. Today, we call them reservations. And now these are the homelands of tribal communities. And again, there's over 300 reservations across the United States. This is where tribal businesses run. These tribal communities basically operate as nations. So when I try to explain um, the relationship between tribal communities and our federal government, I try to explain it as a nation-to-nation relationship. So Native American communities are nations. When you drive onto an Indian reservation, you're no longer in the United States of America. There's a whole uh, set of laws that Native Americans have on their reservations. They have their own court systems. They have their own institutions. In some cases, they operate their own schools. They have their own police forces and so on. So these tribal communities operate as nations. They have their own economy. Again, they have their own form of government. And they have a very distinctive relationship with the federal government that no other um, community in the United States has. So there's a very, very unique uh, relationship. Uh, The federal government is the trustee. I don't want to get too far into that, but I will talk about the trustee relationship a little bit later um, in um, these podcasts that I plan to release on Indigenous people. But I did want to mention that and remind people that if you ever go to a reservation, you are in another country. The largest Indian reservation in the United States is the Navajo Reservation. It is located in the Southwest, Arizona. It's in New Mexico, parts of Colorado, and Utah, so Four Corners area. The local uh, uh, reservation that we have nearby here is Thule River Indian Reservation. That's outside of Porterville, But here in California, we have what you call, are called rancherias. So a rancheria is essentially a reservation. Basically here in California, we are the only state to call them rancherias. So the local rancherias here, and again, a rancheria, I just want to repeat myself so it's clear, a rancheria is basically a reservation. So Table Mountain Rancheria is about 20 minutes from Fresno. It's one of our local rancherias. You have Cold Springs Rancheria which is near Toll House, California. You have Santa Rosa Rancheria, which is outside of Lemoore. You have Norfolk Rancheria, which is near Norfolk. That's about a 45-minute drive from Fresno. You have Big Sandy Rancheria, which is located in um, or near Aubrey, California. 
You have Picune Rancheria, which is located off of Highway 41 on the way to Oakhurst. And you have Jackson Rancheria, which is located near Sonora. So let's get into the terminology. So there's terms like Indian, Native American, American Indian, Aboriginal, First Nations, Indigenous or Indigenous Peoples. And I wanted to kind of clarify some of these terms. But let me just state this. It's important to call people what they want to be called. And there is no agreement on the part of all indigenous people on what terms we should use. So if you talk to one Native American, they might tell you, I don't like the term Indian. If you talk to another Native American, they might be okay with the term Indian. It really depends on the person. So there's no one universal term that we have all got together and agreed agreed upon. And that's really... I think one of the main points I like to hit home when it, in regards to tribal communities that we're all different, we all don't think the same, and we all don't share the same views and opinions on everything. We're just like any other community. So let's talk about the term Indian and why people don't like it. Well, that was a term that was given to indigenous people in the Caribbean by Christopher Columbus. He was supposedly trying to make make his way to India. He thought um, he was in the East and really he was in the Western hemisphere. He had landed in the Caribbean and he called the tribal communities there Indios. And that name has stuck. And thus we have become Indians. You have the term American Indian, which, uh, is still being used. The program at Fresno city college is titled American Indian studies. You have the American Indian movement, which is a very, um, important part of the social justice movements of the 1960s. You had a bunch of urban Indians who got together and created uh, what has um, come to be known as AIM, the American Indian Movement. And I plan on talking a little bit about the history of AIM. So that term uh, became you know pretty uh, popular. Uh, then you also have the term Native American as well. In the 19... 19- um, 80s, the term indigenous or indigenous peoples started to become uh, more commonplace. Again, you have terms like First Nations, Aboriginals. What I tell people is this, is that those terms I just mentioned are all somewhat problematic. And the reason why is that uh, terms like American Indian and Native American kind of lump all indigenous communities into one group. And we're talking about a very, very diverse population. We're talking about people who spoke different languages, had different spiritual and religious customs. Their lifestyles may have been similar in some respects and dissimilar in others. And so it's important to acknowledge the diversity among tribal communities. And that's one of the problems that I think exists when we use a term like Native American is that we just take all these really unique groups and we just lump them into one category. There are some people who prefer the term indigenous peoples, and the S on the end of peoples uh, signifies the diversity. So I use that term a lot, indigenous peoples, because I think it's a a more um, common contemporary term that's being used. I plan on releasing an episode uh, titled What It Means to Be Indigenous here in the coming weeks, and I'm going to talk about uh, where that term comes from. And I'm going to get into um, cultural appropriation and discuss how the indigenous identity is being appropriated by 
uh, non-tribal people. So that podcast is in the works. I plan on releasing that within the next month. What I always um, like to do uh, when I'm speaking of a particular tribe is to use the tribal name. So if I'm using um, the Lakota, for example, and I'm talking about their tribal community, then I'm going to say Lakota. If I'm talking about the Chippewa or I'm talking about my ancestors, the Utes, then I'm going to say Ute. Or if I'm talking about San Carlos Apache, then I'll just say San Carlos Apache. We should never say things like those Indians or the natives. Um, These are terms that I think are, again, a little bit outdated. Uh, As tribal people, yes, we do call ourselves native. Um, You know, I might say, yeah, I know this guy. He's a native brother. We might say stuff like that. But when I'm speaking of a particular tribe, I always try to use the tribal name. So I'm talking about the Lakota, I'm going to say Lakota. I'm talking about the Cheyenne, I'm going to say Cheyenne. If I'm speaking about the Mono, then I'm going to say Mono. And I think that it's a good habit to get into as opposed to being general. Now, if you're speaking about indigenous peoples in general terms, and yes, use terms like indigenous or Native American or American Indian if you are non-native and somebody corrects you and says, hey, I don't, I, I'm Native American and I don't like that term Indian, then I would say don't use it. But just keep in mind that we don't all agree on these terms and how uh, they're supposed to be used and when they're supposed to be used and which ones are outdated and so on. Because I talk to indigenous people all over Indian country, and there are some who have no problem with the term Indian. There are some who have a big time problem with it. So I think it's just important to call people what they want to be called and just be respectful. That's the best way that you can go about it. One of the questions I often get is, when did indigenous peoples arrive in the Western Hemisphere? And I always tell people this, is that we have been here since time immemorial. Every single tribal community, again, there's over 550 of these that are federally recognized in the United States, and there's more south of the border, there's more up into Canada. So we're talking about hundreds of different tribes and they all have their own creation story on how they came to be, how they arrived in their particular homeland. So we have been here forever is what I tell people. Um, some people, you know, will throw the Bering Strait theory at me. And, you know, my response is always this is that it's a theory. And if you want to know the tribal perspectives, talk to tribal people. So if you want to know their creation stories, you need to talk to them. Um, I'm not going to share any creation stories with you today, um, but if you want to learn more about tribal people, um, you can go to their events. There's social gatherings that take place uh, year-round throughout Indian country. And um, tribal people are often willing to share a lot about their culture, a lot about their history. And... um, You can probably look online if you want to read up on some creation stories. Uh, But we have been here since time immemorial. Now, I don't want to say that I don't um, read up on the science. I do read up on the science, and I, I find the science to be interesting. But the science in regards to how Native Americans arrived here in the Western Hemisphere is, in my view, inconclusive. That is, we don't have the entire story. But from the tribal perspective, we have been here again forever. We have been here since time immemorial. All right, so let's talk a little bit about um, 
the diversity among Native Americans. There are literally hundreds of different languages that are spoken by tribal communities, hundreds of different cultures. Every single tribe, every single community has its own unique culture. They have their own unique history. So that's important to remember. So there's a lot of diversity among us. There are a lot of similarities, and there's a lot of dissimilarities. Some Native Americans developed agriculture um, here in the Americas. I would say that agriculture um, started probably around 10,000 years ago when Native Americans started to work with seeds and started to harvest, plant and harvest their own crops. Uh, This resulted in... um, the invention of some really incredible foods that I'll talk about. Uh, The uh, most well-known food that Native Americans invented was corn. Corn cultivation probably started in ancient Mexico, and it was created from a wild plant called teosinte, which is pretty amazing that Native Americans took this wild plant and they turned it into this edible food that fed millions upon millions of people. From ancient Mexico... Corn production spread all the way through the Southwest. Native Americans were growing corn all the way um, up in uh, New York. So uh, corn, the invention of this incredible uh, crop started in ancient Mexico. It spread all the way to what we call the United States today. Uh, Tribes in South America grew corn. People were growing corn in the Caribbean. So you can see how Native Americans were trading, how Native Americans were taking these incredible commodities like corn and um, spreading them to other communities. So corn is just one incredible food, but you also have a bunch of varieties of squashes, beans, chili peppers, pumpkins. Native Americans invent tobacco. Native Americans invent potatoes. Again, we're talking about an agricultural revolution that was started here by indigenous peoples in the Western Hemisphere that's often ignored. And I want to really get into um, the food uh, production that was taking place here in the Americas. And there's just so many foods that we eat every single day, and we don't even realize that they come from Native Americans. It's actually a really incredible story. So indigenous people developed... Uh, sedentary societies, when they invent agriculture, they begin to settle down and live in permanent settlements. And so you have these really incredible civilizations like your Mayas, uh, your Inca civilizations, your Aztecs, your Olmecs. And these are um, urban areas. These are city-states that are constructed by indigenous people, and they're absolutely incredible. And their their accomplishments Um, again, are often ignored. Uh, We know very little about some of these groups. For example, we had uh, mound builders here in the United States, and there were probably over, I don't know, a few thousand mounds that were constructed. There is a flat-top mound that was constructed in Illinois, and you could even visit it today. It's called the city of Cahokia. We don't know much about the people who lived in this city, but what we do know is that they created a flat-top mound that was made out of earth that was 15 acres at its base. And so Native Americans constructed these incredible earth mounds all over the United States. In Mexico, you had 
these stone carved cities. Um, there were these incredible Mayan cities. We're just now beginning to realize uh, the native population was much larger than initially thought. So there's a lot of new technology that's being developed where we can see that indigenous communities existed all throughout the Yucatan, which we've known this for quite a few decades now. But so much of the jungle has overtaken some of these ancient cities that we're just now locating uh, these new locations where indigenous people once thrived and lived. So in 1492, there were probably more than 100 million indigenous people living in the Western Hemisphere. As we begin to uncover these additional uh, cities and locales where indigenous populations thrived, the numbers keep going up. So who knows, maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, the research will indicate that there were more than 150 million indigenous people living in in what we call the Western Hemisphere. And again, we're talking about major civilizations like your Incas, your Aztecs, and your Mayans. These people studied mathematics and astronomy. They studied agriculture. They had public education. They engaged in bridge building. Again, they accomplished so, so much. Uh, The largest indigenous nation uh, would be your Inca, one of their major accomplishments is road construction. They built over a few thousand miles of road networks. Some of these roads still exist even today, and they're still being used by not just indigenous people, but also um, uh, descendants of settlers as well. So Native Americans lived in hunter-gatherer societies. A hunter-gatherer society is a very, very small community, in some cases as small as maybe 30 to 40 50 people at the most. They lived in agrarian communities that um, subsisted off of some agriculture and foraging and hunting. And in some cases, major civilizations like your Mayans, like your Aztecs, your Olmecs, and your Incas, where you had tens of thousands and even millions of people. The Inca uh, civilization was occupied by anywhere from 20 to 30 million indigenous inhabitants, which is really super incredible. So let's talk a little bit more about tribal life. Many Native American societies were hunter-gatherers. My ancestors were mostly hunter-gatherers, and we were nomadic. We moved from one location to another location. It all depended on the time of the year. And I always try to explain to people that Hunter-gatherer societies, yes, they are simplistic in terms of their economy. They hunt, they gather, they forage, and that's pretty much how they sustain their communities. However, their languages are very complex. They have a very deep understanding of their ecosystems. They understand the plant life, the animal life. They know where to find water. They know how to uh, read Uh, weather patterns. They understand a lot about their local environments. They have to understand a lot in order to survive. And so I would argue that indigenous communities had a really deep connection to the land, and it was a pragmatic one. And so we tend to over-romanticize Native Americans and their relationship to the earth. But I would argue that, yes, Native Americans had a deep spiritual connection to the land, but they also had a scientific relationship to the land as well. They understood 
the uh, properties of plants. They understood how to utilize the entire uh, animal that they killed. So Native Americans that hunted buffalo, um, that hunted um, deer or elk or moose or whatever animal that they hunted, they knew every part of that animal. When they harvested plants, they knew how to get the most out of all the plants that they harvested. And they also understood as well environmental management. They knew not to overhunt. They knew exactly where they needed to be during certain times of the year so that they could have successful hunting seasons. They also understood that during winter time that you needed to make sure that you had enough food to make it through to spring. And so these hunter-gatherer societies, in a sense, are in fact complex. So yes, they appear on the surface to be somewhat simplistic in terms of their technology uh, however, when you start to dig a little deeper, what you find is that their languages, their worldview, uh, their philosophical outlook is in- incredibly advanced. Of course, Native Americans invent agriculture, and these societies begin to grow. They become a little more complex. Uh, the social institutions have more responsibilities in these societies because, of course, you have to feed people. If the crops fail and people don't have food, people aren't going to be very happy. So to live in one of these major civilizations like the Aztecs and the Incas, there's probably a lot of stress put on the leaders to ensure that these societies would run smoothly and that everybody would have all the things that they needed, the food, the water, all the resources everybody needs to be able to thrive. And so I would argue that, you know, these indigenous communities were absolutely ingenious and incredible, um, all the way from your hunter-gatherers who had these deep understandings of their ecosystems, a really, really complex view of the earth and the biosphere, to your agriculturalists who really understood um, seeds and how to plant uh, certain crops during certain times of the year how to um, advance their uh, civilizations through advancing their technology. Uh, Political organizations in all Native American communities, in my view, are very complex, from hunter-gatherers all the way to these major civilizations. In North America, I would argue that kinship systems uh, are really important. The central feature to every Native American community is the family And the family uh, is much larger than our view of the family in contemporary society. We tend to think of the nuclear family. Well, family in a Native American sense is your entire community. You are relatives with everybody who lives in your community. So you have a lot of aunties and a lot of uncles. And there's all kinds of uh, cousins and relatives for you to uh, hang out with. And so your community is basically family. Most Native American societies, at least in North America, are matriarchal, which basically means that women hold positions of authority and power. Native American women are um, not subservient to Native American men. They're not subservient to anybody. And you see this in uh, Native societies from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. And one of the best examples that I could give would be the Haudenosaunee, or the Six Nations Iroquois. 
women held uh, positions of power in these societies. They could veto decisions made by men. They had voting rights. Um, they had a really super interesting um, political structure. And there's a lot of evidence, and I tend to argue this um, when I teach and lecture on Native American cultures, that Native Americans, in fact, flu- influenced our founding fathers um, when it comes to uh, democracy and our political philosophy, this idea of freedom and liberty. Trust me, there was nobody who was free in Europe. Europeans find freedom here, and they find the ultimate freedom in Native American communities. In fact, Europeans arrive here and become Native Americans at such an alarming rate that a lot of European societies, European colonies, actually pass laws forbidding Europeans to become members of Native American communities. Many Native American uh, women have so much power in these societies that it's very alluring even for European women because if a European woman marries into a Native American family, she has way more rights and privileges than she would if she lived in a European colony. So this is something that still holds true even today. I would argue that one of the issues with um, settler colonialism is that they brought diseases, they brought with them um, guns and weapons and liquor, alcohol, and so forth, but they also brought with them uh, what is often referred to as toxic masculinity or extreme patriarchy. And I would argue that definitely had a devastating effect on Native Americans, um, and those effects are still being felt today. So let's talk a little bit about Native American spiritual and religious beliefs Indigenous peoples displayed an incredible amount of diversity when it comes to their spiritual customs. And I always try to hammer home this point. Native Americans are very diverse. So when you think of Native people, I want you to think of diversity, diversity in languages spoken, diversity in terms of style of dress, diversity of spiritual traditions, and so on and so on and so on. So we're going to kind of reprogram uh, our listeners. So when we think of Native people, we're not going to think of the stereotypes any longer. We're not going to think of Native Americans all lived in teepees, right? Yes, some Native Americans did live in teepees. Some Native Americans still hold ceremonies in teepees, but only a small group of Native Americans in North America lived in teepees. There were all sorts of different um, homes that Native Americans built and constructed. So when we think of Native Americans from here on out, we're going to think of diversity. We're going to think of Native people um, having an incredible amount of diversity when it comes to their spiritual ceremonies and customs, traditions, and so on. Religious or spiritual leaders are found in all communities. In some cases, tribes had religious orders. They still do uh, to this day, and they train people to become uh, healers or they train people to hold ceremonies. So I always uh, uh, tell people that we shouldn't ever try to replicate a Native American ceremony that is uh, equivalent to cultural appropriation. And believe it or not, I've had people over the years tell me, oh, you know, we should go and build a sweat lodge. I actually had a college professor um, ask me if I would help him build a sweat lodge. Of course, I said no. I also had... um, 
another college professor tell me that he was studying to be a shaman. And I remember asking him, this was at Fresno State, the one professor who wanted me to help him build a sweat lodge was at the University of Oregon. The one who was practicing to be a shaman was at Fresno State. I hate to laugh, but this guy was, uh, he was out of his mind. Um, anyway, um, I asked him, I said, well, how are you studying to be a shaman? He's like, well, you know, I got these books and, you know, I'm talking to certain people and and so on. And, um, of course I tried, uh, to, um, run in the opposite direction of that individual as quickly as I could. Uh, some of these people are just crazy. And again, this is equivalent to cultural appropriation. We shouldn't be trying to replicate Native American ceremonies. It's very highly disrespectful in my view. There are people who are trained to hold ceremonies. Now, if you're invited to a ceremony that is run and operated by a Native American or a group of Native Americans, that's different. Um, If you're invited, uh, I would say go and check it out if that's what you want to do. I'm talking about non-Native people who are, in some cases, profiting off of holding uh, Native American ceremonies. So every community had their own spiritual and religious leaders. Most Native Americans, I would argue, believe that the universe um, has a spiritual force, and that spiritual force surrounds each and every one of us. Uh, The sun is often viewed as a manifestation of spiritual power in the universe. There's also this kind of universal concept of power, that there's power in our homelands, there's power in in certain locations. Uh, Some of these um, uh, places where Native Americans hold ceremonies are incredibly sacred. Uh, There's sacred places all over North America. And Native Americans to this day go to these places to hold ceremonies. They go to these places to practice their customs. Um, Oak Flat in um, Arizona is a sacred place to the Apache. You have Pajasapa, which is sacred to the Lakota. You have Mauna Kea, where they want to build another telescope. I think they have 13 telescopes there. And they want to build another one. And this is sacred to your native Hawaiians. And some people will ask me, well, why is why are these places sacred? And I try to give them um, uh, examples that they can understand. And one of the examples I like to use is um, the 9-11 Memorial in New York. So about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I visited New York. And I was able to... Um, travel a little bit throughout Manhattan. And I did go to the 9-11 Memorial. Of course you're going to go. And man, it's a very powerful, powerful, powerful place. And I would argue because of what happened there on September 11, 2001, that place is sacred. It's sacred to not just uh, the people who lost their loved ones and their families, but it's sacred to all of us Americans. And when people go there, they go there to... Um, remember and think about what happened there, the tragedy of that day. And we always say, never forget, right? Um, I see that a lot on 9-11. And I don't think we should ever forget what happened there. Uh, A horrible event took place, and it really did change uh, so many people's lives. And so many people lost their lives, and so many um, individuals lost loved ones on that day. So that place is sacred, And there are other places that are sacred throughout the United States, like the Battle of Gettysburg. 
that area is hollowed ground. And if somebody were to go to the 9-11 memorial and act like a jackass, um, I think it would be offensive to people. There is a, a place where um, the building st- uh, once stood. And um, if somebody tried to, um, I don't know, climb down one of the memorials there, I think we would all be offended. I know I would be offended. And if we saw somebody uh, doing something that was out of line, we probably would say something to that individual. Well, okay, let's talk about Native Americans now. We have places that are very sacred to us, maybe not for the same reasons as the 9-11 Memorial, but they are sacred places to us, and they are central to our social, psychological, and spiritual well-being. And we want the same respect. So when people go to these sacred places like the Black Hills, we want people to act accordingly. Um, There are some sacred places around the United States that are being threatened by mining companies, that are being threatened by uh, developers and resource gangsters, people who want to destroy the land to get at uh, the minerals, to get at the gold, the copper, um, the oil, the gas, and so on. And for us, these sacred places have power. We go to these places and hold ceremonies. They help us renew our relationships with the land. They help us reconnect with each other as well. And so not only are uh, sacred places central to our cultural and spiritual outlook. They're also central to reconnecting us with community members. So they bind us all together. It binds the land and our families and our community as one. And we go to these places uh, to uh, practice our religion and to keep our culture alive. So whenever one of these places are destroyed, Uh, because of mining, or if it's just destroyed because somebody develops the area, it's equivalent to destroying our culture. So when people ask me, well, what do you guys do there? And I always tell people, well, that's really not anybody's business. If tribes want to share the ceremonies that they perform at these places, or if they want to explain to outsiders why these places are important, that is their prerogative. But I think we should um, give Native Americans the respect, especially our elders and the people with the knowledge, the respect of if they just tell us this place is important to our culture. It has been important for our culture for ever since time immemorial. I think that we should believe them, and I think we should respect that. And so there are sacred places that have been destroyed all across uh, North America and I'm sure South America as well. Native people are fighting to uh, protect their homelands. Uh, Part of our spiritual outlook is to be good caretakers of the earth. There is a a moral responsibility on the part of indigenous peoples to, again, be good caretakers of the land. There has been sacred covenants that have been um, developed over all these hundreds and hundreds of years of living in one place where the land and the people have become interconnected, interdependent, the culture and the religion and the spirituality and the philosophy 
are all connected. It's all one. So uh, the ceremonies that Native American practice um, honor cycles of nature. They honor the planting and the harvesting of crops. Some of these ceremonies are rites of passages and so on. So Native American spirituality is very complex. Again, a lot of diversity. We're not all the same. There are commonalities. The central commonality, again, is that idea of interconnectedness, the idea that we are connected to the land, that we are relatives to the plants and to, the ele- and to all the elements, that we should be ca- good caretakers and we should take care of the water and not pollute our surroundings. And this is why Native people... Um, are so, in some cases, not all, but why many Native Americans are so much against exploitive capitalism because capitalism doesn't care about the land in the same way that indigenous peoples do. Capitalism cares about money. Capitalism cares about profits, profits over everything. If that means destroying this beautiful landscape, if that means blowing a hole in the ground to get at copper, then that's what you do. And that's what's happening in Arizona with... Oak Flat. They want to basically just bomb the area to get at copper. I wanted to mention a few of the major contributions on the part of Native Americans. The first one would be uh, the great confederacies of the Creeks, the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the Iroquois, the Hurons, just to name a few. There were uh, plenty of other Native American confederacies, but these uh, communities really did influence Europeans in their political philosophy. I would argue that native forms of government, while they varied from tribe to tribe, they had that common theme of individual liberty, freedom, and what we call democracy. So Native Americans did not invent the word democracy, but what I would argue is that Native Americans were the ones practicing democracy. So true freedom was here in the Americas, And this is what Europeans saw when they arrive here. When they encounter Native people, they don't encounter authoritarian communities. They encounter people who are free. And Native forms of government profoundly influence the views and the visions of America. Again, this idea of freedom, individual liberty, and so forth. Conduct of trade, diplomacy in North America is influenced by uh, Native people, ideas of liberty, again, and freedom. These are so important to us Americans, but this is really um, something that Native Americans taught to Europeans. Equal representation, American feminism. I spoke about the matriarchal systems of indigenous people. So I would even argue that American feminism was influenced, at least in part, by uh, Native American people, especially the Haudenosaunee, where these women had so much power and so much say that uh, European women um, often went and spoke to these indigenous uh, women to learn a little bit about their societies and their communities. Again, the most important um uh, I shouldn't say the most important, but I would argue that the the tribe or the the tribes that we know most about when it comes to their political philosophy would be uh, the Bohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, Senecas, and Tuscaroras. Um, 
This is a confederacy that was on the East Coast. They're also called um, the Haudenosaunee, or People of the Longhouse, or Six Nations Iroquois. And I, I uh, speak about them often whenever I teach people uh, in my teach my students about Native American culture. And their uh, government is really interesting because when you start to look at our government and you look at their government, you start to see some similarities. So they have uh, different branches of government. They have separations of power, just like our government does. Uh, the Taladajo is kind of like our president. You have your clan mothers. I would argue that they're kind of like the Supreme Court. And then they have a grand council. The big difference in their form of government is that women had voting rights and women were the ones who voted in the leaders and women had a tremendous amount of power. So where as in our country, women didn't have the right to vote until I believe it was in 1920. Uh, women are um, some of the power brokers in these communities. And again, we're talking about the Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, Senecas, and Tuscaroras. The Tuscaroras is the six nation it was originally five um, tribes that put aside differences and created this really incredible um, confederacy. It's still in place today, by the way. So some people think, oh, well, you know, that was a long time ago. And, um, you know, these communities are still operating very much in the same fashion that they operated uh, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. We don't know exactly when this confederacy was formed. could have been uh, 500 years ago. could have been 1,000 years ago. Um, scholars estimate that this is um, one of the oldest representative forms of government. They do have a constitution. It's called the Great Law of Peace. It's all centered around peace and brotherhood, sisterhood, unity, balance of power, the natural rights of all people, freedom of religion, the right of redress before the Grand Council, protections against unauthorized entry into houses, the sharing of resources, impeachment or removal of leaders. And that's just to name a few of the provisions in the Great Law of Peace. Some of the other contributions would include military strategies, Native Americans had some of the, the greatest um, military warriors. You had Crazy Horse. He was Lakota, Sitting Bull, Geronimo, Osceola. Sitting Bull was also Lakota. Geronimo was Apache. Osceola was Seminole. Seminole, by the way, um, fought three wars with the United States, never signed any type of surrender agreement. Tecumseh, who was Shawnee, uh, he was killed by the Americans fighting in the War of 1812, but he was a great warrior, great military strategist. Public education. Uh, several tribes had uh, some form of public education. Engineering, bridge building, road construction, I'd mentioned the Inca and their road building. They had thousands of miles of roads, roads that are still even being used today. Apartment-style living, your Pueblo communities in the Southwest had multi-story 
uh, apartment-style adobe buildings that they still live in, by the way. City planning, canals, aqueduct building. I mean, again, Native Americans were incredibly advanced, especially in these major civilizations. The technology was really advanced. Now, the military technology wasn't nearly as advanced because I would argue that you know Native Americans weren't really interested in going to war unless they absolutely had to. And so their weapon systems weren't nearly as, as advanced as Europeans. They didn't have gunpowder. They didn't utilize steel. It didn't mean that Native Americans didn't go to war to protect uh, their families. They absolutely did. They had uh, conflicts with other tribes. Um, however, they didn't spend um, their time developing weapon systems, but they did spend a lot of time developing uh, their medicine, uh, you know, creating environmental strategies to ensure that there was enough food for everybody and also that the plant life and the animal life also had a space in the environment to thrive and to live. So fishing uh, technologies... Again, understanding uh, the medicinal qualities of plants and pharmaceuticals, the use of fire as an environmental uh, management tool. Fire is utilized by Native Americans from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast to manage their their environments. And one of the reasons why, and I've been arguing this for years, and I've done a, a lot of research on this, one of the reasons why these uh, fires are so bad today is that Native Americans are removed of course, from these ecosystems, and they're forced onto reservations, onto these concentration camps. And what ends up happening is that these um, beautiful, pristine environments start to degrade over the decades, and all this underbrush starts to build up. And what we're just learning now is that Native Americans were um, not just living on the land, but they were actively managing the land and taking being again it wasn't just a a spiritual outlook oh we're going to be good caretakers of the land no they were actively ensuring that the ecosystems were flourishing and today what what's happened is that we're not very good caretakers of the land and we don't take care of the underbrush and we don't ensure that our ecosystems are protected and so there's been like 150 years of underbrush in and around uh, the Sierras. And so now when a fire uh, starts, um, the entire countryside uh, goes up in flames. And when Native Americans were managing these ecosystems, they utilized fire to keep the underbrush from building up. And so if a fire did hit, because remember, you know, natural fires occur, lightning strikes and fires um, start all the time. But these fires typically would burn out. And um, also, there's a lot of species that thrive as well. Uh, when uh, Native Americans would utilize fire, it would encourage new growth. It would encourage the ecosystem kind of to kind of regenerate itself. And so fire as a land management tool, as an environmental protection tool, um, was something that Native Americans used for centuries. Um, and when Europeans arrive here, they don't know anything about uh, in managing ecosystems in this way. 
So I don't really understand what Native Americans are doing, why they're setting these fires, and why they're doing control burns and so forth. So it's another major contribution. Athletics, sports like um, lacrosse, it's the creator's game. That's most certainly a Native American game. Uh, hockey, I would argue that, you know, soccer, football, all these contact sports have their roots in Native American athletics. I also wanted to mention, too, that in 1987, the U.S. Senate did pass a resolution acknowledging a historical debt owed to the Iroquois. So the U.S. Senate has acknowledged um, that the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee Six Nations people did influence our founding fathers um, and um, had a role in bringing democracy to the world. So I think that's, again, one of the most important contributions on the part of Native Americans. Um, I had mentioned this before, but, man, you cannot overlook uh, indigenous agriculture. The three sisters, I want uh, all of you to remember that, the three sisters are the corn, the squash, and the beans. And the three sisters, when they grow together, there's like a symbiotic relationship between these plants. Native Americans, for the most part, didn't utilize any type of fertilizer. But when you grow plants together and you interplant them, um, it helps these plants grow and it protects the soil. It protects the plants from bugs as well and diseases. And Native Americans were really just brilliant agriculturalists. They, they prized diversity. They knew how to... Um, uh, genetically modify uh, the seeds so that way they could adapt to any area that they wanted to grow corn. I mean, Native Americans are growing corn everywhere except for up in like Alaska and northern northern Canada. But they're growing corn in upstate New York. They're growing corn in the Caribbean. Corn production starts in Mexico, and again, they create this plant. This incredible food that is used for so many different things today, they create it from a wild plant. So they take a wild plant that's not edible and they turn it into an edible plant that's feed, that feeds millions upon millions of Native Americans. And of course, um, corn is used for a number of things today. But that's just one, one uh, crop. I mean, there's so many others. Potatoes. Uh, we're talking about thousands of varieties of potatoes um, the premier potato farmers are not the Irish, by the way. It's the Incas. The Incas uh, had um, uh, cities that were dedicated to the study of agriculture, the study of potatoes. And um, they were growing, again, just so many different varieties of this food. They freeze-dried uh, potatoes as well. And so... Um, they could freeze-drive potatoes and use them up to uh, five, six years later. Sunflowers, chocolate. I mean, can you imagine the world without chocolate? I mean, chocolate is ubiquitous, right? We don't even think of Native Americans when we think of chocolate, but we should. Peanuts and peanut butter, these are Native American foods. A variety of nuts and seeds, tomatoes, avocados, chilies. So imagine the culinary arts with no tomatoes. No avocados. Tobacco is a Native American invention. Melons. Uh, some species of cotton are also grown here. 
Um, and again, these crops are domesticated by Native people. These are foods that don't just grow out in the wild. Now, Native Americans are also tending uh, wild foods as well. Um, it's not full-on agriculture, but here in the local area, Native Americans are taking care of your oak trees, are managing uh, these ecosystems in this area because acorn is so important to the diet to uh, the local Sierra Foothill tribes. In this area would be the Mono. And they still harvest um, acorn and they still uh, consume acorn. And every chance I have to, to um, eat acorn, um, I always take it. Um, you know, it's one of those um, foods that you rarely see nowadays. Over 50% of the foods that we eat come from the Americas. Three-fifths of all cultivated crops come from Native Americans. Again, we don't think of Native people when we think of agriculture, but we should. Indigenous um, peoples, again, across um, Mexico, all the way down south to the Caribbean, throughout the southwest, um, all the way uh, through upstate New York, are engaging in intensive agriculture. Uh, I mentioned freeze-drying potatoes, making meat jerky. These are all um, food preservation methods that Native Americans pioneered. Maple syrup is a major food commodity um, that uh, Native Americans are trading and, of course, consuming. Uh, cornbread, peanut butter, potato chips, vanilla, uh, the vanilla orchid, and how to process that, uh, that um, is a Native American invention. I'd mentioned chocolate. Native Americans are the first to drink hot chocolate. Um, I'd mentioned beans, kidney beans, snap beans, string beans, black beans, lima beans, you name it. Native Americans are um, producing these types of foods. So again, the most important thing to know is that these are not wild plants. Again, Native Americans did take care of ecosystems where wild plants and wild foods did grow. And so they protected those areas so that way these plants would thrive. And then, of course, they could consume uh, the fruit. Um, however, Native American agriculturalists were really adept at taking wild plants and domesticating them and turning them, turning them into these incredible foods that we really do take for granted today. And we don't really think about Native Americans whenever we're, you know, eating salsa. You think about Mexican food as really Native American food. And some of the foods that Native people are uh, known for aren't even really our foods. It's really reservation food. Um, I know some of you probably have had uh, Native American fry bread. And Native fry bread is, uh, again, ubiquitous throughout Native American country. Um, everybody talks about how it's somebody in their family who has the best fry bread. I always tell people I think the, that Navajo fry bread is some of the best fry bread I've had. Um, although my mother does make some pretty good fry bread. But fry bread really is reservation food. Native Americans, when they're put onto uh, reservations, they're forced 
uh, into dependency and they're forced to give up much of their traditional lifestyle, which means they have to give up much of their traditional food. So what's happened today is that we've taken on this Western diet. And as a result of taking on the Western diet, we are dealing with all sorts of um, health issues, obesity, hypertension, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, some major problem in Indian country. And a lot of it has to do with consuming these foods that may taste really good. I always tell people, man, fry bread tastes great. It's a great food. If you have a chance to eat fry bread, you gotta, you gotta eat it. But, uh, too much fry bread, too much of the Western diet has really done a lot of us in. And I think that, um, getting back to our traditional diets, um, eating fish and eating deer, venison, elk, um, harvesting uh, these wild foods is definitely best if we can do this. And this is really hard for many indigenous communities to do today because of where they live. A lot of tribal communities live in the city, but even in the city, you have tribal communities are um, putting together community gardens and um, on reservations, you have tribal communities that are growing some of the traditional foods. This is, um, again, part of that indigenous renaissance that I've been talking about. Again, we have a lot of issues that need to be addressed. We're, our communities have a long ways to go. We all do. Um, settler colonialism really did a number on all tribal communities. Nevertheless, I always uh, tell people, and this is what um, you know, keeps me motivated is I just see so many positive things happening in Indian country. So yeah, fry bread, definitely good, but it's not necessarily <clears throat> a traditional um, food that we ate before Europeans come here. This is a kind of a post-colonial food, if you will. So I think that's going to uh, conclude this um, podcast today. Again, this is part one. So I'm going to come back and I'm going to finish up um, this discussion here with the, with part two. And I'm going to be adding additional podcasts in celebration of Native American Heritage Month. I spoke with uh, some members of Indigenous Enterprise. I spoke with Kenneth Shirley. He's the CEO of Indigenous Enterprise. And so I'm going to be releasing an episode with them. And I'll have some other um, episodes on some other topics. I had mentioned um, that I want to do an episode. I've actually started working on it, on what it means to be indigenous. And I'm going to really get into what I, again, it's just going to be my perspective on what it means to be indigenous. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about cultural appropriation. You know, because Native American culture is so interesting and it has that cool factor. There's a lot of people who want to adopt the identity. And so anyway, I have some ideas and perspectives on that. And I think that um, it's going to be um, a little controversial, to say the least. So, But I'm looking forward to putting that out. And um, I'm also uh, going to mention some books. I have a couple books right here that if you want to learn a lot about Native Americans real fast. Well, obviously, you listen to this podcast and you just learned a lot. But if you want to learn more, again, I can't teach you all everything because I don't know everything. That's number one. Um, but there's just no way to learn everything about Native Americans. I know very little. 
I know more than a lot of people because there's just so much misinformation about Native Americans. However, what I do know is just a fraction of the knowledge that exists. And I want to put that out there is that I'm by all means not an expert in um, Native American culture and history. I don't see myself as an expert. I always see myself as somebody who's always learning. So even though, yes, I did teach uh, American Indian studies for over 15 years, yes, I have my own experiences as a Native American uh, participating in Native American ceremonies, spiritual and religious ceremonies. Um, I, by all means, don't consider myself an expert. I always see myself as somebody who's always learning, always talking to people. Um, but there are a few books that you can pick up. Um, one is titled Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask. It's a short book, and you could literally sit and read this book in an afternoon, and you could learn so much about Native people. Um, it's not. It's one of the books that I used in my American Indian culture class. It's just such an easy read. We would read it in class and then discuss it. And the other book is Do All Indians Live in Teepees? Um, it's basically just a question and answer book. That's what uh, the everything you wanted to know about Indians but were afraid to ask is also a question and answer book as well. So those are really two good uh, resources. So I wanted to end the show with some indigenous people answering commonly Googled questions about Native Americans. I think you guys are going to like this. Enjoy. My name is Keeman Palau. I am half Diné and half Tongan. My name is Marianne Bugs. I'm an enrolled member of the Caddo tribe, and I'm also Cheyenne Arapaho. I'm Brandy Lewis, and I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Hi, my name is Silas Cleveland. I'm an Eastern Shoshone Native American from the Wind River Indian Reservation here in Wyoming. Today, I'm going to be answering your questions about Native Americans. Why do people call Native Americans Indians? Well. That's because Christopher Columbus was lost. If you don't know who he is, that's probably a good thing. He thought he was in India, and so he called the people that he encountered Indians. I'm not Indian, I'm not from India, so don't call me Indian, please. Thank you. Do indigenous tribes still exist? Yes, absolutely. There are plenty of tribes out there still today. However, there are many that are not. There are over 500 unique and different tribes in the United States. But did you know there are over 300 tribes that are not yet federally recognized? That is over 800 tribes on Turtle Island or what is now the continental US that are here. Each one has their own language. Each one has their own customs. I look forward to a time when everybody understands what being Native American means. What do Native Americans prefer to be called? There are a couple of answers to this. Because every Native person is going to have a different response. For myself personally, I grew up being called American Indian. I think it's an individual choice. Not everybody, not everybody who's Native American has the same answer. I prefer Native American. I have dear friends that they don't like being called Indian. Indian to me, you're probably from India. I like to be referred to as being Choctaw. That's what I am. I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation. I'm a Choctaw woman. There's so many terms, Aboriginal, First Nations, Native American, Native, Indigenous. It's a preference. I know that I personally like to be 
called indigenous. I think it's the best term to describe me and my ancestors as the original people of this land. What do Native Americans believe in? Well, if I was joking, I would say fry bread. But um, I think that you're referring to like a spiritual, a spiritual beliefs. And that's that's going to vary tribe to tribe, individual to individual. In general, we believe that we are responsible for this land, that we were placed in this country to take care of it. I personally have feel a deep connection to um, this land and all the creatures and um, things that are on it. Because of colonization, forced conversion on my people, we were not allowed to practice our way of life. We were not allowed to speak our language. It was deemed evil, savage, not of God. And if we were to do so, we were either beaten, whipped, or killed. So my people had to conform. We had to adapt in order to survive, which is sad. And over time, that religion was instilled. You have natives that are Catholic, you have natives that are Christian, and you have natives that are neither, that are reconnecting, trying to backtrack and learn about our way of life, about our beliefs before they were taken from us. Is Native American an ethnicity? Yes, I would say so. Although we speak different languages and we're not all the same, we have that shared appreciation and thankfulness for everything that surrounds us. I believe that it is an ethnicity. I believe that it is a culture. Native Americans have a rich and vibrant and wonderful culture, no matter what tribe they are. Do Native Americans celebrate Thanksgiving? And I think that's, you know, a preference that Native people can make for themselves. I celebrate Thanksgiving because that's how I was raised. I think it's a time in general just to be thankful about the life that we have here, but there are many Native Americans who do not celebrate it. I like the idea of Thanksgiving. I'm all for being thankful, giving back, and being with friends and family. However, that is romanticized. Thanksgiving is much, much more than that. It is a deep-rooted pain and hurt and story of colonization, massacre, lies. So for me and my family, it is a day of mourning. My family, we, we don't always do the typical quintessential Thanksgiving dinner. I actually try to do some traditional dishes and incorporate those in our meals and use it as a time for education. So to me, it's still a gathering with family. Definitely not forgetting, keeping the ancestors in mind, always thinking about that, thinking about what they had to go through. What is a reservation? It's kind of a sad word, really, when I think about reservation. A reservation is an area that Native Americans were technically given, which, I mean, they were our lands to begin with. The government, the United States, were greedy and lustful for oil, property, and gold. And we were in the way. So they forced us to relocate onto tiny patches of land so far from what was home for us, hoping that we would slowly die off. Today, there are many reservations where there is no running water, where the population is almost entirely in poverty, and where sickness and other things exist that cause harm to our people. The reservation system in America is a tragedy, actually. While there is a rich culture and people, 
it is a stark reminder of how this country has mistreated the Native American population. That I was well that said. We continue to make strides in improving the reservation system. And I invite everybody to look up or Google Native American reservations near me and visit one or find out more about one. Well, I really enjoyed these questions. I'm happy that people are still Googling us. People are still curious. I think I would say uh, to non-Native people, spend more time asking questions and listening. I welcome each and every opportunity that comes along to speak about my people because I'm very proud of who I am and what my people represent. I hope you learned something new today. I hope I answered some of your questions. I'd like to give a shout out to the Wind River Indian Reservation, to the Eastern Shoshone, my tribe, and the Northern Arapaho, who are here too. Uh, I love you all and have a blessed day. Man, that's a perfect way to end the show. I'm gonna give you guys some outro music here. I enjoy doing this. I enjoy sharing a little bit about indigenous cultures and histories. Just want you all to know, I am no Indian expert. I am no indigenous expert. I know very little. I'm still learning. Um, but it's fun to share what I do know. And if there is something that I got wrong in this uh, episode, feel free to uh, send me a direct message uh, on Instagram. Um, or my email my email is on Instagram as well y'all have a great day wherever you are right now wherever you are listening to this hope everyone is well and I look forward to part two of our series on indigenous cultures indigenous histories and contemporary Indian life alright everyone peace peace